Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today we're talking about embracing open source geospatial technology and while many of you are doing this already, you might be struggling to get strategic buy-in for PhosphorG for your organization. And strategic buy-in is hard and it turns out that software does not sell itself and even in the age of AI, we still need to convince a human if we want organizational change to happen. I think when you're trying to make this kind of change happen, the temptation is to say something like this, hey, look at this long list of specifications and notice how phosphorg is often better or equal to the closed source equivalent. Or, hey, look at the price tag. It costs nothing, which is way cheaper than whatever it is that we're paying today. And while this argumentation might be all you need in some cases, in general, making change is really, really hard and it's gonna require more than that. That's why I've invited Todd Barr back on the podcast to walk us through what it takes to get an organization to embrace open source geospatial technology. Just a quick side note before we get started, Todd supports this podcast on Patreon and you can do the same. Hey Todd, well, welcome back to the podcast. You've been on here before and I'll have a link to that in the in the show notes for, for those people that, that want to hear about, want to listen to our last conversation, which I highly recommend. But today... The idea is to talk about how we get strategic buy-in for phosphor You are the director of geospatial product and solutions at a huge insurance company. I'm sure we'll talk more about that in just a second. But maybe you could give us a brief introduction, put some more words around that, the introduction I just gave. Who are you? How did you get involved in, in geospatial? Why do you care about phosphor I've been in geospatial now for, I want to say, it's 24 years. I'll, it's almost a quarter of a century at this point in the game. I started off as an economic analyst at an international nonprofit in DC, and I first got into geospatial when um, we had a USAID contract that required to do an econometric spatial analysis of HIV AIDS in Africa. So my company sent me up to New York for, I was in DC at the time, uh, my company sent me up to New York for a week-long training in MapInfo. When we came back, we finished our analysis, and I was talking to my director, and I was like, hey, this stuff's awesome, we should use it everywhere. And he's like, yeah, I agree, but um, you know, this was long before web mapping existed. So we just kind of died on the vine. And then um, after 9-11, I was uh, approached by a recruiter. And they're like, hey, you have, geospatial tech- you have a geospatial technology background. You are a statistician. Um, would you like a security clearance? I'm like, yeah, this sounds cool. And, you know, everybody was kind of caught up in the whole global war on terror thing at the time. And then I got sucked into that environment for forever, um, about, I want to say, 15 years. And then I had some personal issues. I, I Well, not issues. I, um, um, I got full custody of my daughter. And I could no longer be, it can't be 11 o'clock, I get a phone call, I have to go into an operations center. So I rejiggered my career a bit and uh, started doing consulting for a bit in DC, you know, giving me the flexibility so I could be around for, a, for my two, at that time she was two, so I could go to daycare if I needed to. If she was sick, I could stay at home or just, you know, work remotely or whatever. So I needed that flexibility. And then in 2015, I decided being a single parent in DC was just way too much. It was just, I was just too stressed all the time. So I ended up moving to uh, Fort Myers, Florida to work on a large precision ag contract for uh, U.S. Sugar. And then after that, I was there for about a year. And then I moved to Colorado for a bit, still working on the, in precision ag. And then um, Hurricane Ivan, I think, came through. And uh, U.S. Sugar just kind of, they let, they were figuring out their, uh, their damage and, you know, their books and everything. So they kind of let all the contractors go. And after that, I became, um, I was, became the CTO at an AI startup in Colorado. And then, uh, Around late or mid 2019, 
I decided I needed to get back to the East Coast. Um, so then I started working for Verisk. We're a large data provider for the insurance for the insurance uh, vertical. I kind of took this job as I don't want to say a lark, but it was just it was like oh I haven't really explored the insurance vertical for geospatial, so I, let's see what it's like. And it's amazing. The data problems we deal with on the, in the scale we deal with is really off the charts. It's really insurance really integrates geospatial and the economic aspects and a bunch of different uh, parts of the analyses into sing, into a single solution. Because in insurance, everything for the most part happens in location, right? Everything from a car accident to a hurricane, like the one that's currently making landfall in Florida, we have to under, have to be spatially aware. And the whole community, I don't have to explain the power of geospatial to a lot of my clients because they already know it out of the gate, right? They understand what spatial analytics brings to their brings to our table, their ROI, and how it makes their job just easier. And that's one thing I love about the insurance vertical is the fact that geospatial is not the uphill battle it's been in the past for like, you know, other people to explain why maps important. They understand why spatial analysis is important and why spatial data is important and, and how that analytic just makes their job easier. It makes their understanding of what's going to happen easier, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a, a whole nother podcast episode in itself because I was fortunate enough to attend a talk that you gave at North 51 in, in Banff this year. Fascinating stuff. I think we should, we should save a lot of that stuff for, for another podcast episode. The promise of this one is how we get strategic buy-in for Phosphor-G. So before we get there, like, why do you care about Phosphor-G? Why aren't you, why are you just like, I just want a product to do the thing. But why do you personally care about Phosphor-G? So let's dive into my personal reason for liking Phosphor-G. So I teach at Northeastern University, mostly geospatial artificial intelligence remote sensing classes. But what really, really brings a Phosphor-G tech to the forefront is the fact that it's the free part. It's a democratization aspect of it. As long as you have a computer and some know-how and the ability to Google or chat GPT at this point, anyone has access to the same kind of analysis for free, right? I'm, I'm a kid. I'm in high school. I get this crazy idea. I do some Googling on the internet and find, I find post-gis and I put together some and I learn and I pick up some spatial SQL and I can run an, an analytic the same way as someone who paid $100,000 for an enterprise software can, right? So that's me from a, that's from a personal level. From a professional level, I support Phosphor G technologies. One, it's usually since it's built on standards, opposed to being built on uh, on a company's standard, it's built on more you know international standards like OGC compliant stuff. It's more easily integratable to multiple systems, and you know we never know what systems our clients are going to have out of the gate. Based on standards, we have to that gives us the capability to integrate with all their systems internally, regardless of what they're running. Sometimes we have to build a bridge, but usually that's usually not a heavy lift. It's usually just as simple as an API. Additionally, because at the end of the day, when you're using FOSS technologies, it's all about building up your staff, building up your people, right? It's sending them to training. It's having them understand these things. And then and the technology and the, what they learn becomes transferable. If someone understands spatial SQL, you know they understand SQL to a certain extent, and they can build upon that. If someone understands multiple geospatial Python libraries, they have a general understanding of Python. So it really brings the full power of developers to a problem and to build a, and to build a product around that leads to a more robust and, well, first off, it, it, brings, a, it brings a cost savings to the client, but it usually brings a more robust, more integratable product in, at the end of the day. And it, we don't have to rely on a, a company to build a bridge between uh, this BI system and, and your and PostGIS or this BI system and your enterprise software, we can build that bridge on our own. We can we can build it to our client specifications. 
Okay, so that, that, that all makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate a lot of the arguments that, that, you, that you gave there. We're going to dive into this in, in a bunch more detail in just a second here. But perhaps before we do that, where are we today in terms of your open source stack? Could you give us, you know, is it just the back end? Is it also the front end? Is it both? Maybe you could tell us about some of the bigger building blocks you're using in the stack, how many users, how much data, just to give us an idea of, of what it is that you've built with, with Phosphor G software. And then we can sort of move on and talk about, well, how did you get buy-in to do that? So uh, with us, uh, all, of our, all of our client software is, is based on FOSS technology across various for the most part. We have a few closed source or proprietary software systems running around. We use it, our research group uses a lot of proprietary software internally, but they kind of use whatever they want. We get everything from, um, you know, from net C, uh, CDF files from R to, you know, people sending us shapefiles from, from ArcGIS stack. But as far as our stack goes, it's pretty, it's pretty generic when it comes to FOSS technologies. It's GeoServer front, it's GeoServer serving up the data, uh, open layers front end, uh, build an Angular and some, and some C-sharp code to, uh, to make some connectivity. And then the back end, the data back end is, uh, is PostGIS, Postgres with PostGIS. And since we're moving, we've moved into a cloud stack. So we used to have a lot of stuff based on, based on SQL Server. And as we moved to the cloud stack, we found the licensing for that was uh, cost prohibitive. So as a, as a company, we're moving into more of a Postgres redshift sort of uh, with our cloud environment. Um, but for us, we're using, we're using Postgres because it allows us to more easily update our data models because our data models are huge. And they're delivered to us in usually a text format. And they're usually too big to bake it as like just to a shape file or even like a, a file geo to geo database. And it just becomes too big and encumbering. Um, case point, we build catastrophic models. We simulate 10,000 years worth of storms, 50,000 years worth of storms, and 100,000 years worth of storms. Storm track. And then for us, uh, NOAA does a, a point every six hours to give relative metadata about the storm, uh, wind speed, barometric levels, that kind of stuff. Our simulated storm is every hour. So we have what we call hourly points. And so every storm of the 10,000-year storm, which comes out to, you know, a couple million rows, just in storm tracks, and then each one of the storms is detailed every hour. So we're looking for about 200 hours. So we're looking about 200 million rows just for our smallest catalogs. Wow. Our largest catalogs can be multiple billion rows. Wow. And that's all in Postgres. And we found that the speed and efficiency to bring that data out is a lot faster using spatial SQL than it would be going through a, a proprietary software solution. So you, you've got a lot of data. You're using relatively standard building blocks. Um, you mentioned that you some of your you would bake some of your own magic in there to help out with connectivity. Do you also have a lot of users? Is this a internal facing piece of software, or are you also serving external users? And another question on top of that, many questions here. I apologize. Is it also production, or is it you know is it just a is this a, just a test environment that we're talking about? So our SaaS products are all based on open source technologies, like we discussed, but we have our catalog viewer application, our SaaS product, which is being hit heavily right now because there's a hurricane hitting the, in the coast, allows our clients to interrogate our, our tropical cyclone catalogs. So our user base, not to give it away, but we spit up a number of Docker instances during, um, during when, when there's an event. When there's not an event, it's, there's, no one really touches it, right? It's kind of a, it's kind of a slow product when, on the, uh, off a of hurricane season. Um, we have other products that are, are still client-facing and they're based on FOSS technology, but they're they're on on-prem install. We're working to move that stuff to the cloud. But right now, that's all on-prem. So they have a internally, they probably have between fifty and hundred users at any given time. And our catalog viewer product, it, like I said, the users go up and down depending on the depending on the storm. Sometimes we're, we have heavy hits. Other times, it's very light. Yeah. Okay. Why not? So why even build any of this stuff in-house? I guess before we get to the the question of yeah, how we get buy-in to do this 
to do this kind of work using open source products, what, why you'd have to answer the question like, what, why do why even build it in house? Why not go to something like uh, Microsoft Planetary Computer, Google Earth Engine, uh, BigQuery, you know, insert name of big platform here kind of thing. Oh, for us, it was all it's all because our use cases are a little different, right? Because our, our use cases are based on our clients. And uh, th- those platforms didn't really match up with our use cases at the time. Um, moving forward, we may be able to integrate like planetary computer or something into our application. But really, we don't, we don't deal a lot with remote sensing data. Uh, we mostly deal with vector data because we, b- we build a bunch of data fabric, right? So we really don't use external platforms because internally, we have a number of data sources and we try to protect our IP. We have certain rules internally that we can't share our data with external providers. So a lot of it is because we're an IP-based company, right? We build these massive data models, and um, we really don't want it to leave our little walled garden. So we keep everything internally and build internal products, whereas we're trying to protect our IP from, um, from our clients reverse engineering it or someone else reverse engineering it, right? And understanding what kind of secret saucer goes, goes into our, our these massive data models we put together. Yeah, again, the, 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 this makes a ton of sense. Okay, so we've, we've come a long way. You've given us a background how, how we got here. You've talked a little bit about the stack that you're using. And the reason why you, know, you, your company, decided to build this thing in-house all makes a ton of sense. Now, now we're faced with, in, so, so let's say one of, one of the listeners was in a similar situation. They have to build something in-house. It, it has to be geospatial. Let's try and narrow the choice down. Closed source or open source. How do we get buy-in for the open source side of, of this equation? And what I'm hoping we can do here is maybe divide the stakeholders into internal and external stakeholders. So can we do that for a start, talk about the internal stakeholders, talk about how we get buy-in from them, and then move on to the external stakeholders. And then perhaps towards the end of the conversation, we can talk about some of the, the, the sort of bigger issues around you know, open source software in production environments. Okay, sure. So internally, you know, because when you, when you start building a product, you go through and you do a bunch of research to decide, you know, are we going to use a proprietary software solution for this that we, for us, we'd host it internally, uh, like an ArcGIS Enterprise or ArcGIS Server Solution. Or are we going to go with open source? So when you first start talking to, to a number of people about open source technologies, internally, there's always questions like, well, how, how do we maintain security? What if there is a security flaw? Who's going to fix that? Basically, who are, who's going to be contractually obligated to fix like, like last year we had, or I, it was during lockdown, but uh, we had a log4g issue with, with, uh, with GeoServer. And the community came to it, uh, came up with a solution in a couple of weeks. But during those couple of weeks, there's a lot of negotiation internally. It's like, okay, do we maintain this geo server, or do we go with a, pl- or do we buy some software to make sure that we can any security flaws be navigated? So I had to work with the software group and negotiate with them, telling you know the community will provide a solution. And then moving forward from there, we found a contractor who um, we call in whenever there is a issue with with the uh, with the geo server security. Right? It's kind of an on call. Uh, it's a kind of just an on call contract. When working with software groups, you also not just discuss security, but also discuss training and how available developers are. And I explained to them that it's really simple to bring in a developer who doesn't understand geospatial technologies, bring them up to speed on various things. What's projection? You know, what's what's a shape file? What's vector? How many? What's a multipoint vector file look like? What's a what's a raster file look like? That kind of stuff. And it's easier to bring people like that and and have them get started on an open source stack. You know, here's some Python, here's some C sharp code, here's JavaScript, and as long as and bringing the developers up to speed and understanding that technology. But when you bring in like someone who un- only understands like an Arc solution or a, another proprietary solution, like you know a hexagon, you have to bring them around to train them more on like what is raw Python, 
right? What is this? What is that? Because you're used to work, the words you're used to working when that playground where they can use ArcPy or use other proprietary uh, software libraries. But when we bring them into a situation where it's like, hey, we integrate with this with normal Python and with other things, it's, there's, a, there's a steeper learning curve with that. So once the software group understands that they can hire people to fix these things and hire people to develop these things, that usually puts them at ease. And also, you know, it's like, yeah, the, and the training is much easier too for, for a developer. If you take, so, you know, we work on scrum teams, people cycle in and out on different teams, depending on the situation and depending on the future. So we can bring in another developer. They understand JavaScript. We get them spun up a little bit on open layers. And they can get rolling right away. So there's also internal support with that too. And then the training is a lot, sim- I don't want to say simpler, but it's a more accessible because they're learning just different aspects of their coding languages for the developers. And then we have like our, our consulting and sales groups, right? Uh, the buy-in from them is like, because the clients come to them and say, hey, will this integrate with our systems? Yes. But there'll be a cost savings over time. And again, with our consulting group, as long as it works on our clients and we can, and we can bring our consulting group, our consultants up to speed, the ones who directly interface with the clients for uh, problems and solutions and for feedback, it's bringing them as like, it's a simpler solution. It feeds, the clients can have a more flexible solution if they require it. If they need a certain API, we can build that for them directly on top of our code. Or if they want to integrate our solution into their pre-existing enterprise workflow. It's like, hey, here's a, API based on standards. Here's an API based on standards that you understand. There is a, an open data platform within the catastrophic modeling community called Oasis. It's like, hey, this meets your Oasis standards for, for, for a cat modeling feed. You can bring it into your solution that you've created in-house that you don't want to change, and you can just directly feed it right in. And then we have our management and internal stakeholders, you know, like your SCP level and, uh, and the corporation itself. And it's like, okay, we are training more developers, we have more access to developers, and we, we have a larger pool of people we can hire. This brings in a cost savings because we don't have to pay, you know, for production licenses for ArcGIS server or Hexagon or whatever the platform, Cardo, wherever. This is a free solution to us. And we bring in more human capital and we develop human capital based on these technologies by training as someone who is already a Python expert in geospatial Python or someone who's a database administrator, change them into geospatial database administrator. So it becomes accessible and it's just a win-win for everyone across the board. There's cost savings, which makes the corporation happy. There's happy developers because they get to learn new neat stuff that's based on technology they already know. And from the client perspective or from our consulting perspective, it brings in, you know, it allows them to bring custom solutions directly to our clients for an easier integration of clients' workflows. Or if the client isn't as technically sophisticated enough for that, they can have a product that is just as, as solid as any other proprietary software. Now, from an external perspective with our clients, we do get a lot of questions about it because a lot of clients do have a proprietary stack. But as long as we can show integration, and the cost savings, reliability, and security, the clients are satisfied with the solution. As long as they can, get, they can still get a shapefile delivered if they need one, that's fine. Or if they want a GeoJSON feed, we can do that too. Or if they want an API feed that only brings in XYZ data and only does certain things, we can create that API on the fly based on standard technologies and data standards, and they can absorb and they can consume that data into their normal workflows. So it's a it makes their, it makes clients satisfied as well, and it reduces their overall cost because you know open source technologies aren't going to go up because of inflation, right? I know proprietary software solutions have gone up over the past couple of years because, you know, this inflationary push we've had post-COVID, you know, the, that's what the F is. It's free, right? Not just, it's not just free to change, free to operate, but it's also, it's, there's no cost to you. 
Wow, we you covered a lot of ground there. Um, I'm on, and if you just give me a minute here, I think for the next little bit, I think we should try and tease apart some of the stuff. Okay, you, you talked about uh, the uh, external stakeholders um, towards the end there, and so I want to start with them. Would it be fair to say they don't really care that it's not really a selling point for them if it's uh, you know, phosphate software or if it's uh, closed source? They don't really care as long as they can get the thing that they want. Yeah. That's, that's, that's basically what they want. You know, they, 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 want, they want our models in their solution. They want our models, they want to be able to, to run analytics against it. And as long as it's being their requirements, you know, the, the client doesn't care if I'm running, you know, a hamster wheel with a, with a, you know, a hamster drawing maps and putting it up on the fly, right? As long as, as, long as, it's, getting, as, long as it's getting what they want, they really don't care how they get it. That, that is a great mental image, thanks. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so the, the clients don't care. They, they just want their problem solved. We, we hear this again right. and again and again. Please just solve the problem for me. This is why we're paying you money. As long as you're doing that, we, we don't care. It's not a selling point as such. So, so let's talk about these internal stakeholders again. It'd be fair, like if someone was listening to this and say, well, that's great for Todd. You know, they are the, the director of geospatial products and solutions. The director, they could just say, hey, we're going this way and people would have to listen to them. Maybe, they would, maybe you can just say the decision has been made. That's the way we're going. If people are thinking that, is, is that fair? And if so, if not, why not? Oh, that is not fair. Uh, so I'm director of product, right? I'm not director of software. So in product, we really don't have, we sit at the, Venn, we sit the middle of the Venn diagram of having to please software, clients, consultants, internal stakeholders, external stakeholders. But I don't have any, I don't have any power to go, hey, we're going this way. All the power product has, and this isn't just this isn't just me. This is any director of product, product manager, or product owner. Really, is soft power. So we have to strategically convince people that this would be the right way to go. I can't just go, hey, you know, we're, we're building everything based on on go from here on out, right? Because I have to negotiate with software to say, okay, so my uh, director of software would say, hey, Go language is supported with this, that, and this other thing. And this is why we should start pushing this direction. And then I'd have to do that soft sell with them and get them on board. And then it, it, that would have to go up, go up the chain to, to a certain respect to other internal stakeholders. They're basically to the people who sign the checks to go, hey, we're moving to a Go-based solution. And these are the reasons why we're moving to Go. Not that we're moving to Go or anything, just using another example. And then, then they go, okay, so this does this, that, and this other thing for us. And yeah, this is how, this is how it works. That works out in the end. And then we'd have to go to consulting and then they'd have to bring that and then they had to understand what the client's interface with that is and how the clients would react. So I can't just say, you know, I can't go and change everything. I have to negotiate any change I make. And I do that through, and this is kind of a, this will bring it long winded here for a couple minutes. So there's a, an author I follow and he's a consultant called uh, Keith Ferrazzi. He wrote a book in 2004 that changed the way how I viewed networking called Never Eat Alone. I, according to Amazon, I've, I've purchased this book 104 times to give it to people. And I've got like three copies of myself. Um, but it's just, that's how he networks. So I've always, so I've kind of followed him since then. He, and right before the pandemic, he had this concept called co-elevation. And really what co-elevation is, it's bringing collaboration, empathy, open communication and stuff into those environments. As a product leader, I can't directly tell someone to do something. I have to have them trust me and understand I have to build a rapport and the people have to trust me and there have to be open communication and building that trust. And then we both and showing how we both win. So it's always about a, a some plus game and going back to, you know, I, I'm an economist by training. So something is always go back to game theory. And so I've always believed the world is some plus we, everybody can win. 
if a rising tide raises all boats, we can all work together to build a better environment for everyone. And so using that philosophy and co-elevation, that allows me to really bring a growth mindset to the whole situation and showing people how we can all win based on this next move. Okay. So uh, yeah, I, I love the concept. I got to say that first. You, you make it sound very, yeah, for, for, forgive me for, for, for describing like this, it's not a critique, but you make it sound sort of very, very warm and fluffy. There'll be people listening to this that think, uh, isn't it based on specs? Like, isn't it just a question of does it meet the specs kind of thing? Can't we just make two spreadsheets, hold them up against each other, and then let you know, the, the logical side of our brain make a decision? One would think that, right? But there's other things involved. It's like, what stack have we built previously? Like, uh, like the director of software, what's his background or their background, right? Where do they come from? What's their, what's their code languages? How would they view just a comparison of CPU versus GPU or this JavaScript library versus that JavaScript library? There's an understanding that we have to negotiate with those other directors and that they have a, they have a certain, I don't want to say agenda, but they have a certain background and they view things a certain way. And as someone from product, I have to align my views with theirs, understand where they're coming from so I can better work with them to move forward on a different solution or a solution that is an open source solution or a solution that better feels, feels like clients. So is it just as simple as a one and zero? No. There's a lot in between there of negotiation between understanding where the developers will come from, understanding the development community around that, having the people and the stakeholders inside understanding that point of view beyond just, just a number sheet of like, this is the fastest way to do it. Would it also be fair to say that these people need a different kind of messaging? So the messaging needs to be different depending on who we're talking to. Is this kind of where we're going? Yeah. So I have to speak differently to a consultant than I do from a, from, to a software developing guy, right? Because they don't speak the same languages. So I have to understand, I have to be empathetic to their situation, what their views are, and then be able to change my messaging based on who I'm talking to. So I do something called... It's basically a political support board. Uh, it's, a, it's a matrix of how much support I have, how much, you know, how much understanding I have this person. And then I build bios around that for the different players I'm dealing with to understand how I can influence them and kind of what their needs are and how I can feed those needs and how we can both co-elevate and how we can, and how we can both win, right? If this person feels this way about open source technologies, why do they feel this way? What do I need to do to nudge them a little bit more to the right on the grid? bring them in closer to support. How, what are they really concerned about? What do they understand? What are they, what are they looking for? Uh, as far as clients go, you know, what is this client view? How, how closely aligned is this client with a proprietary software company? How can we work with them to understand, so they can understand that, you know, there's, our solution may not be what their, their technical team is used to, but, you know, we've met, we've met the security requirements, we meet your speed requirements, we meet your data requirements. So here's, your, here's the feed internally. So it's really, at the end, it just comes down to understanding and being empathetic to other people's, to how people view things. Because, you know, software isn't all just ones and zeros. It's people. Well, at least till the, until, you know, until AI is just writing software for itself. Yeah. But right now, we still, we, still have, we still have to, like, work with people. We have to work with the number of people who understand this technology and, and, or versus that technology or how we train people up and how we, you know, how we understand their relationship with vendors as well. Because that plays a role, too. And understanding you know, the executives, what are their points of view on this? What do they feel? What are they, what do they want? And working with them and understanding that. Is any part of the process that you're describing, like, you know, all these things you need to, to think about, the, the, almost the, the information you need to gather, the, the way you build your arguments, is any part of this different depending on if we're like moving away from closed source to open source or if we're, 
in the situation where we're building on top of an existing open source stack with more open source software. Are these vastly different situations in terms of getting buy-in? Yeah. So if you have someone who's already like built a solution on top of something, you have to go through and like explain what why it's why it's you know that's like you know your house was built on this foundation, and then someone comes up and says, "Hey, I want to change your foundation." And you're like, "There's nothing wrong with my current foundation, right?" So if there was al- if there's already a solution that's built on top of proprietary on a proper proprietary technologies, and if you want to bring in a Fossil G stack, you have to be able to integrate those two things together and explain why. Uh, let's say I want to bring in post Postgres. Or uh, I want to bring in Postgres to like a, uh, a an Esri stack, right? Why do I want to do that? Why do I want to generate that? And what's 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 the win on that? Uh, is it faster analysis? Is there a reason for this? Is it more stability? Is it more secure? But you have to really explain to that person exactly why, or that stakeholder as to why we need to go through and change the foundation, or why we need to add to their foundation, or why we need to change something. And then working with them and actually showing to them how this becomes a win for them and for and for the company. Yeah, I can I can see like um you know a, a couple of those sayings that are floating around out there in the universe. The idea that it, if it isn't broken, don't fix it. So I, I can imagine in this situation, it's not just enough to prove that it's broken, but also and this is the way we fix it. I, I can imagine that'd be difficult. Potentially, these people are not looking to change unless there's an obvious you know problem looming or we're standing in a crisis at this very moment. I can imagine that being really difficult. And and there's this other great saying out there. I want to run by you. No one ever got fired for buying IBM. And for, for me, what this says is like no one ever got fired for, for buying certainty, for, for doing the thing that everybody else is, is doing. And I, I think this is probably worth exploring in terms of, of uh, Phosphor-G because it's got to be easier to buy the Microsoft product, right? Everybody knows Microsoft. It's a very well-established brand. There's someone to point at. If it goes wrong, it's as standard as it can be. How do you think about that in terms of yeah, is this one of the, the challenges facing like the implementation of phosphor G? Is this this idea if we just do the thing we've always done, if we stick with these these standard closed source products, we've got someone to point at, no one's going to get fired, and we can say, well, hey, everyone else is doing it. That's true. Number and that's that's fine for a number of people, but if you want to be innovative and you want to create new things, you want to build on top of things, you want to out and you want to operate outside of that safe sandbox and grow and become more. Then yeah, you have to be, you have to be able to take that risk, right? It's like yeah, we can we can build what we've always built and what everybody else has, but makes us different from our competitors. Then we're both offering the exact same thing at that point. There may be some special sauce on the back end, but you can't really dive into it and really change it. You know, you can't like say yeah, we're going to deliver this faster, we're going to deliver this better than our competitors, and we're using the same the exact same stack that they are, right? We don't we didn't add anything to it. We're just at that point, you're just you know you're just like tightening a bolt for them. You're not changing the world. You're not changing. You're not wowing them. It's like, yeah, this is neat. And I saw six other people do the exact same thing last week. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I get that. Could we um, maybe address some of these, what I imagine is, is sort of typical reasons why people don't want to do this or, or perhaps like typical um, ideas around uh, phosphagy. And I can imagine one of them being like, oh, but there's, there's no one to point at. There's no responsibility. There's no like one person or single organization that's responsible for this. When I think about Phosphor G, I think about treating, there's a community who is essentially the, the software provider. And dealing with a community has got to be vastly different from dealing with an organization where someone has a job, they get paid to answer your questions and to look through the backlog and, and update things. This is not necessarily the case with a community. 
how have you found that? Like the, the difference between dealing with a, a closed source software provider and a community? So yeah, with the closed source software provider, you can say, hey, do you need to release a security, let's say a security patch for this, right? Or a security patch for that. Or when's the next version coming out? Or we need this feature put into it. And they put it in their backlog and run it through. Um, with Phosphor G technology, it's like, hey, we want to do this. And the community is like, we're not interested in doing that right now. You can go, okay. And then you bring your development team and they go, let's do this. Let's change this about this product. Let's change this about the solution. Let's make this better. Let's, do, let's build this for our, ourselves. And you can just do it. If the community doesn't stand up, then you can fix it internally. Or, you know, there's plenty of Phosphor G contractors out there. There's plenty of contractors out there who've done this stuff. Uh, there's a couple locally here in Boston I know of that would have done huge open source solutions for the, for the local community or for the for like local townships and stuff around Massachusetts. And then, you know, you have international organization or international companies that do that, that support this stuff all the time. And again, it goes back to like, this is built on standards. This is built on standard coding languages. We got access to the source code. This is what we need to change. And that's what your consultants can do too. And then you can have a contract, a contract with a consultant and go, we've hired this consultancy, this, hired this consultancy. If there's a security issue, uh, the contract indicates that they'll find a solution within 48 hours. Let's say that's a little fast. And I'm just pulling that, I'm kind of pulling that number out of the air. But, you know, we're, they can fix it within a week or they can fix it in a couple of days. So you can still get the same finger pointing you get with a, with, a, with a proprietary software company, but you can just do it either internally or with an external consultant. Okay, so another thing I can imagine people saying is, ah, there's limited documentation with some of these open, open source products. There's limited documentation, but there's plenty of people out there on message boards on Twitter, right? And if you get on Twitter or X, I guess now, or any of the software boards, you can interact with the people who've built these things and ask them questions. Sure, the, the software, the documentation is a little light, but the documentation, documentation is always ignored in software development. It's what happens at the end. And everybody's usually tired and, they did, and the documentation, unless you have a dedicated documentation team like we have here, it's difficult to put that together. But I have access to the people who've built the software. I can ask Jody a question about GeoServer, right? Or I can get Paul on the horn for our, our post just question. You can interact with those people, interface with those people and get real answers. Okay, so, so what would you say to me if I said, yeah, sure, Phosphor G is great, but there's a real lack of specific vertical solutions. Yeah, because they're all built on standards, so you can like puzzle piece anything together. I don't get an automatic mobile to server application, but I can, I can puzzle pieces together and put, and they're usually, and since they're built on data standards, they usually interface pretty simply. If not, I can always build, I can always build a data bridge. I know I make that sound simple, and it's not all the time, but as long as it's built on standards, it's knowable and doable. And your developers should be able to look at it and go, yeah, I can do that in a week. I can do that in a sprint. You know, I can do that in four weeks. There's known solutions and, and with, with it being built on standard code, you can bring in a developer who can, do, who can figure it out and put it together pretty quickly. Opposed to like a closed source solution, which you're just given the endpoints or the connect endpoints. You don't really understand how, it works, how the engine works itself. It's a black box. This kind of gets back to, to a lot of these sort of questions and topics I'm, I'm bringing up here where people might use it as you know, pushing back against the idea of implementing uh, Phosphor G in their, in their products or services. But, but the, the idea of the, the long-term viability of this, how do you think about that? So longevity for a product, it's based on a community, right? It's always based on the, on the latest version or the best, the best version. So as long as things keep moving forward and supported by the OpenGeo community or the, and the open source community. But then even if it goes away, let's say that GeoServer loses the funding it has and it just becomes an executable on a website. Again, it's built on standards, built on standard code. I can take that. I can continue building it. I can continue working with it as long as I have the internal staff to do that. 
or then, you know, if, if one, if it, if it continues to grow, you can, you know, major companies can support these things and make them better. There can always be a sponsor, right? Like, uh, didn't, didn't felt just do a, become a major sponsor for QGIS. Yeah, they did, which is amazing. Yeah. That, that, that kind of thing. Right. If organizations are heavy, are heavy users of open source technology, they should, they should support it in some way, either by having developers show up to code sprints or monetarily. Right. And that community keeps that software going and it keeps building the software to specifications that the community is required. So I, I realize a lot of these questions here towards the end are kind of like re- recovering old ground, if you will. But I think it's, re- I think it's really important to, to hear your opinion on them as someone who is using this, again, in a, in a production environment and in a relatively important production environment, I'd, I'd like to add. How do you think about finding staff for this? Has this I'm not sure if you're still involved in the hiring process or, or have been in the past. But what's your feeling about finding you know, skilled developers, skilled professionals that, that have a good grasp of this uh, Phosphor-G software that, that you can then employ? Is there, you know, is, is, are they difficult to find? Is it easy to find? Are they easy to, do they stay in the company for a longer period of time? That, that kind of thing. So it, it's about the same level. A few years ago, let's say in like 2014, 2015, it was, it was hard to find someone who understood Phosphor-G technology. Right, geospatial really hadn't found its stride. I, st- I still don't think it has, but we're better than we were, let's say. And back then, it was like, okay, we'll bring in a we'll bring in a standard like a standard Python developer, or a front end JavaScript person, and we'll get them trained up on like you know the basic geospatial skills they need. And that's it. Kind of rings true now, but we can bring in if I'm building a, an open layers application, I can bring in a standard Angular developer, a standard JavaScript developer, and go, hey, this is open layers. We can work with this. So really finding people right now, is, it's about the same as finding someone who understands proprietary software. And if I can't find someone, I can grab someone internally and get them trained up on like, you know, on, on that kind of stuff as well. It's like I can grab another JavaScript developer. I realize I have the, I'm talking from a point of privilege where I work for a very large organization that has access to a lot of resources. I can just bring other developers in from other teams or other scrum teams. But even when I was working on a small startup or anything, it was, if someone didn't understand the geospatial technology, we just train them or send them, we sent them to a, to a conference. And so they could start picking up on it and getting a better understanding of what it is. But if I brought in like a proprietary software developer, I'd have to retrain them. And like, to a certain extent, this has been my experience. I have to train them on what the baseline code is, right? This is our Python interface to our database system that isn't geospatial. It's, it's our financial engine or it hits something different, right? And here's what you need to understand about this. And that's usually a steeper climb than it is to bring a developer in to teach them, you know, the basics of geospatial opposed to bringing a geospatial developer and teaching them the basics of like coding and like standard IT interfaces and stuff. You, I, I remember talking to Paul Ramsey a, a while back and <laughs> he said something which, which should have been pretty obvious to me, but, but it wasn't. He said um, that the economics of, of cloud computing doesn't work w- without free uh, Phosphor-G. It, it doesn't work without open source geospatial software. And I, I'm sure there's a, a little bit of nuance there, but I get where he's going, right? If you're going to spin up a thousand instances of something, you'd prefer not to pay a license for each instance. Where, you know, it makes a lot of sense when you're processing large amounts of data. I wonder, and I'd be curious to hear your opinion on that, if cloud computing hasn't really driven the understanding or awareness of uh, Phosphor-G. I believe it has, yeah. Back when we were starting to move over to AWS, from like when I was working with the feds, no one really had a really good grasp on the, how to license cloud software at that point. And it just it was expensive and weird. And we've kind of got that under control now. We have a better understanding of what, you know, license models are for, for proprietary software within the cloud. But yeah, like you're, like you're right, like, like again, with our software as a solution, 
our SaaS product right now, Kevin, we were with a storm hitting the, hitting the water. We probably have a number of instances running and they're all running on GeoServer and I don't have to pay another 15 grand a year for an extendable license, right? It's just, I'm just paying for compute time and I'm paying for data time and like a certain amount of bandwidth. I'm not paying for another license or another thing. But yeah, I believe that cloud computing and the ability just to spin up a thousand servers on the fly is what really is starting to push for more phosphor G technology. And with a large organization, like a proprietary organization, they can't pivot on the fly as well to really get, get an understanding of what, what kind of license model they need to put together for that. Because they, again, they have to, their financial team has to negotiate with internal stakeholders. So we don't know what's going to come out on the other side of that. So with the open source technology, it's like, yeah, I'm running a thousand instances of GeoServer on a thousand different Docker containers right now. And I'm paying, I don't know, 10 grand a day in compute time and like 50 grand and like $2,500 a day in data, in data egress. And, but I'm not paying for a license fee for that. Yeah. So we, we've mentioned this idea of, you know, the, the cost of it quite a few times. Uh, and it's even in the name, free and open source software. I realize that, again, you know, free can, can be a lot of different things. But, but let's think of it here in terms of the price, the cost. Is this ever your, your leading argument for implementing phosphor um, With people who sign checks, yeah. It's like, you know, we don't pay for the software. Then we go into the cloud thing. It's like, yeah, if we spin this up in the cloud, if this solution versus that solution, if we're spinning this up in the cloud, it's going to cost us 50 grand a year. If we do this, it's going to cost us, you know, 10 grand a year in compute time, right? Which we'd still be paying on top of the, uh, on top of the license fee we'd be paying for the proprietary software. So I, I lead with free when it comes to people who are concerned about money or concerned about the overall budget. I use free as in we can do what we want with it when I'm dealing with people who want to do the technical stuff, who want to go in and build the guts of the engine or want to like go in and understand it, right? So, and that's, that's why I lead with the, it's free as in we can, it's, light, it's a free license, we can do whatever we want with it. We can take it, we can strip it down to the brick components. We can pull different functions out of that, put that into a different solution. We can do whatever we want with the code. Again, makes a ton of sense. How would you, so... Does your company do anything to help maintain these communities? So obviously you employ some of these uh, skilled developers to help you, uh, perhaps as consultants from time to time. This is one way of you know, helping maintain a community. But it, do, you, do you do anything else to help sort of maintain, nurture these communities, help continue their, their existence? That's something internally I'm working on. We're a large company. We use a lot of phosphor g technology. I advocate for support for the community internally, but I can, you know, I'm just, I, I hate to say this, but I'm just a director. I can't, I can't push it that hard. So it's something I'm working with internally. And again, using co-elevation, going through and talking about how this is a win-win for everybody is, and using that to kind of help nudge our stakeholders in that direction. Maybe we should send developers to sprints. Maybe we should start being in more active with the OGC. We will have a contingent at Phosphor G this year. Uh, Phosphor GNA down in Baltimore on the what the 23rd to the 25th of October. And, you know, there'll be some of us down there for that. And from that point, I want to start integrating my firm more with the open, the open source community. So, so that question was not in any way designed or a, a way of putting you on the spot. But I, yeah, I think it's worth bringing up this topic because it's one thing to use the software. It's another thing to give back to the community. And we need to maintain these communities, you know, if we're going to if we're going to continue to to derive benefit from this. Uh, so a couple of questions here just to round off the conversation. What, what is one obvious way you think other companies that, that are using you know, large amounts of the software, uh, Phosphor G, what, what's one way they could do today, tomorrow to, to help give something back? And then perhaps what, what would the, the perfect longer term plan be for, for some of these companies to help maintain these communities, which you know, that, that they depend really heavily on? I say threefold. One would be financially because the uh, Phosphor G technology always, it's based on community and volunteers for the most part. So 
if they can start paying to get applications done or paying for features to get done as, as a you know, company should, be, should, should support the community financially. Second, loan out developers for a week or two, right? You can always, it's just, that's basically just a sprint. It's not, it's, it shouldn't put you that far behind on other stuff. And it really helps the community out by just having more hands on the product. And third would be to sponsor conferences and sponsor it. You know, get the word out there more and like talk about what you're actually using as your backend stack. Saying, hey, you know, we're PricewaterhouseCoopers and our, our geospatial applications are, are Postgres and PostGIS and have that conversation out there and supporting the community through interaction and thought leadership as well. Thank you, Todd. I, I really enjoy this conversation, but I, you know, I always enjoy our conversations. Um, it's been a pleasure having you back on the, the podcast. Where is, can people reach out to you anywhere if they, if they want to catch up with you, if they want to um, connect with you, if they want to continue this conversation? Uh, the best place to find me these days is LinkedIn. Ever since Twitter kind of imploded, I've been hit or miss on there. Um, I, and I really haven't found another microblogging platform that I'm in love with yet. You know, Threads is fine. Mastodon's great. But it, seems, it seems still removed from the, from the aspect of community we had on Twitter or X, you know, like just like six months ago. So really just finding me on LinkedIn be the best thing. I'm under my name, Todd Barr. Yeah, I'm, it's pretty obvious who I am on there. Uh, I have a lot of geospatial link pictures on my page. LinkedIn is really the best place to reach out for me these days. Thanks again, Todd. Re- really enjoyed talking with you. I'll, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes and hopefully people can connect with you there. Well, thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. I really appreciate it. And I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Todd Barr. The, like Todd mentioned, the best place to catch up with them is currently LinkedIn. And if you want to check out their previous episode, there'll be a link to that in the show notes of the episode that you've just listened to. So thank you very much for tuning in. I'll be back again soon. I hope that you'll take the time to join me then.